Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Let's Do the Right Thing in association with RadioWorks. Presented and curated by Adam Hopkinson. Hello and welcome to the LDTRT podcast. A podcast helping you see where industry leaders have started with a new direction and done the right thing along the way. Today I'll be talking with Matthew Dearden and asking specifically about Journey to Date and what the best and worst things have been about it. Matthew, I also want to hear about what you're setting your sights on now and what problem in the world you're setting out to resolve. I'm hoping to hear some secret sauce here that will give some insight into how a light media is carving its place out in the world of out of home. I'm Adam Hopkinson, the host of this podcast and the founder of LDTRT, Let's Do the Right Thing. For today's LDTRT podcast, we have Matthew Dearden, a founder of and the CEO of Alight Media, a regional out-of-home media owner with both digital and analogue inventory. Matthew, thank you very much for taking the time to come. Pleasure to be here. I'm going to have to touch on astrophysics later. Other guests that we've had did degrees in similar concentrated disciplines, but for now, let's stick with media. Brand manager at P&G... Marketing Director at BT, Chief Executive at Clear Channel, and then President at Clear Channel Europe. Was it a lifelong plan, um, those things, and did you always want to set your own business up? I suppose those specific roles were never a lifelong plan. I think it's a mistake to be planning a career looking for very specific jobs. First of all, it limits you. Uh, You may not be lucky, you may not get them. And secondly, the world changes and evolves, and it can make it hard to respond as it does. So I've tried to think about what work do I enjoy doing, What work am I good at doing, but not merely good at doing? There are lots of other talented people in the world, and and merely being good, uh, I've I've learned more and more, is what actually makes me excited and be the best I can be. So I try and look for the the roles where I'd be unusually good at it. My skills are are particularly well suited to it. And that'll often come down to, uh, I'm quite good with complexity and unresolved challenges like that and as the world changes and how do we keep up with it so I'm quite good in these complex fast changing uh, scenarios and being able to distill that into real world change so I kind of look for roles that give me a chance to to do that first of all in marketing commercial and then in leadership roles so I was very lucky to have the chance to do that and I loved it a real privilege to do it and then a, a moment came along when I was looking at another such corporate role and I realized who are the people that I tended to admire and envy and look at with uh, a a really different degree of respect. And I noticed that it was often serial entrepreneurs and founders were the people I was looking at and thinking there's something magical about what they've done and what they do and the change they create that really appealed to me. And I'd always had a nagging doubt of was this something I'd want to do? And I suppose I had the moment of clarity of thinking when I look back at my career, would I regret it if I'd never started something? And I was very clear that for me the answer is yes. That would have been a a, a real sadness for me if I hadn't. And I was very fortunate to have a life chance to do it where there's an industry I I know and like and I could see a real opportunity to get a business going. So I I guess the business opportunity came along at the right life moment to have the chance to dive in. And what was the opportunity that you saw? Can you tell us a little bit about Alight Media? 
Out of Home is a fabulous medium. Having been client-side most of my career, one of the things I like about Out of Home is even today it's still undervalued. There's still lots of clients who, who could and I think should be using it more differently and better. So I feel great about selling it because there's a lot of opportunity for brands. And what I see in Out of Home is having been part of driving a big wave of digitization, first in the UK and then in other countries, uh, digitization of Out of Home is a great opportunity for all involved. And what it's done is focus the major players on the money they're putting into the screens. And if anything, that's over-focused them on those fewer, better locations. And that has meant that as a truly national medium, Out of Home has started to develop some gaps. So if you're a, a brand owner, part of the advantage of Out of Home is, is you get truly national reach, fast cover build, great proximity. And you can still get some of those metrics, but you're relying on the fact that people travel into towns and see your advertising there. But we all know it's at, at its most powerful when you see an ad around the time and place that it's relevant to what's being advertised. So I, I think that true proximity and true national reach is especially important. So what we've seen from a, a brand and media planner's point of view is there were gaps emerging that we're able to fill. And on the other side of our market, from the landlord's point of view, Here's how I think of it. Some locations that get referred to by the industry as second and third tier locations that are being underserved, mm-hmm. that still have first tier human beings in them, just like everywhere else. So we see an opportunity to fill the gap on both sides. Absolutely. And and first tier businesses. So there's lots of regional startups coming out of Bournemouth, Bristol, etc., that that need a, a channel to communicate with their customers through. It's really vibrant. So our first contract was in Bournemouth. That was delightful for us. And it is our first proper tender when we won it, which was a great feeling. Uh, And it's a really vibrant town. Um, When I first started researching about it, I was pleasantly surprised how big it is, how vibrant the demographic skews, how well respected the university is for many of its courses. But also it is a regional economic hub. Uh, It's got more agencies, I'm told, it's got more agencies than Los Angeles. And it is a very vibrant uh, cultural creative media community and a lot of local businesses that want to advertise and in the UK we underserve our SMEs with advertising. Mm. Deloitte did some work for the Advertising Association showing that SMEs get disproportionately high growth when they invest in above the line advertising. So it's one of those situations where uh, we feel we're doing our clients a favour when we sell to them because it's well, stealing your phrase, we're doing the right thing, helping them advertise their business. It's obviously great for us to get the revenue, but we know it works and it grows their business. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. 
Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I think the industry has made it extremely complicated for people to buy out of home media. Are, are you doing something to help SMEs get an easy access to your product? Yeah, there's a couple of approaches. Um, one is people will create self-serve websites which look great, and those of us in the industry think they look helpful and dynamic and fantastic. The reality is uh, SMEs still find that quite hard to buy. They still don't really know how to think about it in the right ways. This is new to them. Uh, So that is a a valid and viable approach and a, a critical part of the mix, which we will be doing. But increasingly, you need to do a more consultative sell, helping the client understand the business problem that they're solving, and then typically bringing together creative with the media, for example. Uh, so you're not just demanding give me your creative, you're actually helping them work out their overall marketing mix and, and the message that goes on there. So we have a dedicated person working in that area who can help set up the infrastructure and the local partnerships to grow that out. Do you think there'll ever be a green argument for the classic panels? I do. Um, like most media, out-of-home uses more energy and therefore carbon than consumers would tend to realise at first sight. Uh, in the past, I've moved a company onto entirely zero carbon electricity, uh, and I, I think that is the right thing to do. I think it depends how you do it rather than necessarily what the product is. I, I think the most challenging product is is the vinyl skins, which can be recycled, but it's hard to do. I think there's quite a strong argument to say that your online media are seen as low environmental impact because there isn't waste going in your bin. Mm. But I, I think the carbon impact from the data centers and the networks is really quite significant. I agree, it's misleading completely. So I, I think there is a, a strong environment argument if you do it right, which is what we're seeking to do. Being a year into your journey now, what are you learning? What, what, what stood out for you as something that potentially surprised you more than anything else? Maybe about yourself. I think as you go through corporate roles, you learn a lot about yourself, about leadership, about change and making things happen and commercial focus. Then when you move into, I suppose there are differences here, both it's early stage and it's much smaller, a lot of those skills that you've grown up with serve you incredibly well. Clarity, leadership, motivation, engaging with people all become more important. But some of the skills actively get in your way. For example, I had a mentor who who would always tell us, only do what only you can do which is great if you've got a senior leadership role in an organisation. It's a very good guide. If you could delegate it, you should. Mm -hmm. Uh, That absolutely makes sense. Uh, And I kind of have to have the opposite mentality here. My role is to let my team free. I've got a fantastic colleague, Jed, who's out selling. And if I could set Jed free to spend all his time selling and I could take as much admin as I can off him, not all of it because he's better at it than than I'm at some, but the more I can take off him, the better. So coming back to your question of what have I learned, a real shift of focus onto the increased importance of people, team, human connection, but also letting go and and actively turning on their head some of the corporate disciplines about actually it is my job to get completely hands-on. You referred before we started the tape rolling. Is it still a tape? Maybe it's that's a too tape. analog for it, it, you. It's a tape. <laughs> oh, uh, you referred to being chief photocopier officer. Yeah, I'm the CTO, the CFO, the chief bin emptier. And, and being happy to be that hands-on and engaging is really important. Perhaps another thing I notice is you can have a great strategy. You could do all the right deals. But ultimately, the highs are higher and the lows are lower. So the emotional resilience to go through that uh, is much more important. And a lot of the advertising targeted at SMEs, I used to intellectually understand it, and it now resonates with me much more. So you see people talk about starting a business is really a test of character, for example, is a line I know one brand uses. That rings really true, the, the importance of 
emotional assurance going through matters, I think, more than some of the intellectual arguments about strategy or funding or whatever. Is there, is there anything particular that you're missing from your corporate background? Uh, the ease with which you can focus on what you think your core job is, by which I mean... So you're now doing everything? You're now doing everything. So I always had a lot of respect, for example, for my PAs, and I look back with even more respect for quite how many things they were juggling. And I learned things like, um, I'm, I'm a terrible accounts payable clerk. I'm just not great at getting through detailed process admin. It's not my forte. And yet I've had to learn to be disciplined in doing it, to create the systems and so on. So you miss the easy ways in which you can make things happen at scale. You're now having to differentiate the roles. So you've, you've brought Jed in to do sales. You've got other people in to do different disciplines. When does that balance tip that you you do everything and then you suddenly start letting go and bringing other people in to do those things and help you out with that i found it's less about specific role clarity if you have a large organization you have to be fairly directive about which role is which and where the handovers happen when you've got a small organization you're all working together the need for clarity is at least as high but i find that the clarity is more on what are our current projects and priorities and less on the long-term, my job, your job type negotiation that we see in the turf wars and corporations. Mm. So clarity is more important, but because we talk every day, because we're, we're sitting there working on similar work together, uh, I find it is more about this week, this month, what our priorities, who's working on what project, and that does naturally evolve over time. So it's less of a one-time action, it's more of an ongoing vigilance to maintain that between us we have that clarity. You talk about clarity, and I appreciate that. And I've actually turned to you several times previously for your advice. And I feel that you've got a tremendous ability to distill messy thoughts into a clear and concise solution. When you start out, there's so much complexity in everything that's going on. Who, who do you have that does that for you? Well, thank you for the compliment. And My you're... pleasure. You look very good today as well. <laughs> as to you, sir, admiring your beard earlier. <laughs> uh, look, you're right. That is something I think I'm good at. And it is a skill that has helped me through a lot of my roles. It's also something that in this situation isn't the be-all and end-all because having decided what we're doing, you go through the, the thinking curve of what's the opportunity and what's our business plan. And then I suppose I find I have a couple of different day-to-day -day challenges. It's not so much that it's complex, it's that it's high volume. Because I'm involved in so many different parts of the business being quite hands-on, uh, completely hands-on. In many cases, it is me. If I don't do it, it doesn't happen. And you then have a much longer, more granular to-do list than I would have had in previous roles. So the ability to manage this high volume of relatively small, granular tasks, it's a slightly different mindset, different set of tools and skills. Um, so that's been a, a change of attitude. Uh, I have a, an opinion that most people are very poor at both doing and reflecting. And quite often, people get stuck into doing their job and, and are not really able to stand back and say, what's the meta, what's broadly going on? How do I want to change the way we work or the direction of the business? And actually, most people can do it, but they can't do it at the same time, is really my point. That's why businesses have away days and off-sites and all these conversations, is to force people to get out. So what I've experienced as, a, as an entrepreneur is you're very busy doing. As somebody put it to me, you're working in the business you can't work on the business and making yourself have that split of being able to do both I found quite challenging at times making sure you step out and step up above and consider yourself the leadership for what you're doing there what I find particularly helpful I've noticed a real shift from 
in corporate roles, we all have a network and we talk to other people in big companies and get to know what life is like there. Here, getting to know lots of other people who are entrepreneurs, whether it's in media or other sectors, is a very different set of people, different set of experiences, and a different set of challenges. So what I've found is there isn't any one person that I'd say it's her or him, but there's four or five people I repeatedly go back to. And what they have in common is they've all done it. They've all started at least one business. And I find they tend to ask me similar questions. And it's very often about pause, stand back, and make sure you're leading yourself as, as well as doing the tasks. When are you going to give yourself a break and go, well done, Matthew? That's never been a strength of mine. Yeah. <laughs> but you need the goals, right? You need to set a certain objective and go, all right, at that point, if we are here, and that could be coverage that you've got, that could be an advertiser that you've picked up, that could be the revenue. There are many ways for you measuring the success. But, but when's the one that's in your head that you... Okay, this is good. I suppose one of the things I like about a new small business is I still celebrate every single booking. And you don't feel that when you're in a corporation that's owned by somebody else and it's big and there are lots of bookings. Every single booking that comes in feels great. So you do get mini celebrations relatively often. When I will really crack the champagne is when we've built all the digital assets we want to build and the other types of assets, at least in this first wave, and when we are achieving the yields they ought to achieve. I suppose that's got to be the two sides of it, of business success. And you want to see that built on the people you're working with, enjoying themselves, having fun, both getting the emotional reward and the financial reward that should come with it. But for me, what I'm seeing is we are getting the traction in the market and it's moving. And I want to see things actually built and, and achieving the, the sales that we should. We're on track to get there. Fantastic. And when we get there, it will be very different to merely being on track. It's, it's exciting when you get to the milestone. Amazing. Do you feel that when you've got a, a smaller team and a startup mentality, that it's easier to affect that change because they've got to believe in you and they have to believe in you because you are the business. You don't have a corporate background behind you. You don't have whatever the, the infrastructure was beforehand. You have to 100% believe in what you're doing right now. Do people come on that journey easier? It's a great question. People are in many ways better and easier in this scenario because we've all made the conscious choice to be here. One of the things that we've looked for is who's hungry for this. It can't just be somebody who needs a job. They should go and work in a corporation. They've got to be hungry to work in a small early stage company with big growth ambitions. But you've got to want to be there. Having selected people who do really want to be here now you don't have the problem with hearts and minds. Everyone can see what needs to be done. You go in with an open, honest conversation and pretty quickly everyone can get on the same place. So you're right, it is an interesting shift. You're not so much putting the leadership effort into changing hearts and minds internally. You're putting it into creating your own infrastructure and products and so on. And then you have to go externally to change hearts and minds because ultimately it's about serving customers and their agencies. Things are digitizing and, and digital doesn't just necessarily mean yeah, the ability to ad serve something or to have rotating copy or whatever it might be. It could just be a channel by which to, rather than have a dude driving around in his van and putting up his analog media, it could be the delivery mechanic. The, the supply path in out of home is slightly over intermediated. You have a brand agency, specialist, um, sales place, um, landlord, right, as a, you know, as a fairly truncated route. Digitally, we've got client, agency, DSP, trading desk, DSP, exchange, SSP, publisher, etc. When these two things collide, that sounds like that's going to be chaos to me. I'm a big fan of digitization, uh, done right. And I think there's a lot of nonsense talked about digital and what it means, particularly uh, in out of home, where 
what I see a lot, a lot of visions for how digital should work have been driven by the tech vendors, and it doesn't truly understand the need of either end of the value chain, mm. either the media owner or, or, or the client. We or, forget or what the client wants pretty quickly. We do, or, or even the agency. Yeah. So I, I think there's a, a, a few areas I'd explore around that. Um, within out of home, putting up screens has been very expensive, physically difficult, requires new trading models, and it's made media owners and agencies and buyers focus on those challenges. Where I want to challenge the industry a little bit and where my business alight will be is different. We have the advantage of being new, so we can start with new modern tools. And I think the difficult part of digitization isn't putting up a screen. Digitization for me is actually about a mindset shift, having a different, flexible, media savvy attitude to what is it, what problems are we solving for our clients, therefore what are we offering, how do we package our media, how do we price it, what do we say yes and no to. So if I'm a little bit harsh, I still see too many media owners who are treating digital out of home like a really fancy scroller. And they'll take a loop of six or eight ads and they'll run the same loop for one or two weeks and they might do a bit of flexibility around the edges. But ultimately, that's significantly under-realizing the digital opportunity. I'd far rather be in a place where we're talking to the client about what's the business problem you're trying to solve and move up the value chain away from would you like to buy that poster on that location on that date. For some clients, that's the right thing to buy. That's fine. But some clients might want to say, actually, I want hot weather or I want drive time or I want Mondays, or I want high pollen counts, or I want a trigger event. When the football match finishes, I want this to go up live. Or when a news headline happens, I want to be able to get my response out in near real time. These are all real examples. What I want to be seeing is the industry seeing a mindset shift to those things being normal, rather than the award-winning entries and the conference stage presentations. Those should be how we treat the medium as a a day-to-day normality. And it's a big jump for sellers and buyers, our personal skill sets, our commercial models, our IT stacks all have to change. Uh, And I have the advantage being you, I'm able to use an IT stack which doesn't use loops. Pretty much all the platforms use loops. And then they'll put in a programmatic container into a slot in the loop and pretend that's flexible. But it really isn't. It just gives you an opportunity to race to the bottom with an RTB uh, type bid. It doesn't actually give a media planner or buyer the flexibility they need. Whereas on the other hand, our, our system that we bought in creates playlists based on business rules. And all the examples I gave you before and many others are the kinds of business goal that we can give to a brief and then churn out the playlist and tell the screens now you're doing this. Is the out-of-home media owner industry getting together to make sure that there's best practice here as everything digitizes? It's interesting. You, you, you may know I'm a former president of the global body for out-of-home media owners and was at the conference earlier this year. There's a lot of conversation. I think there's little formalization. Uh, in the UK, there's a very helpful standards body that's made a lot of progress um, getting basic infrastructure in place. It hasn't gone as far as it did in Australia, for example, where the industry got together to actually build a platform together. I think it's unlikely that we will fully standardise for a few reasons, some of them good, some of them frustrating. Uh, I think the good reasons are there are genuine competitive differences and you don't want standardisation to become anti-competitive. And there are genuine competitive differences in the way media owners think about packaging and pricing their inventory. And I think we have to encourage that diversity, uh, complex though it can be. And then I think there are some less good reasons around different people making choices of I like this vendor, I like this tech, I've got a shareholding in that vendor. Uh, I think my market position will be better helped by 
this short-term change. To be fair, there's a hint of competition in that last one, which I like. If it's complexity for competition, great. But there's a lot of non-value-add reasons going on as well. So I ultimately think it's, it's not going to be designed by the industry in that sense. What I hope will happen is that some of the better tech vendors will win out. There's some pretty smart people in the media owners. What I hope and think will happen is that they, they will take a longer-term view of picking the right trading model. And I, I guess when I look at the tech vendors that are out there, there are some very easy choices with low upfront costs that you can implement quickly that lock you into a tech platform that have very high ongoing fees and, more importantly, a trading model that commoditizes you. And quite often what they offer you is a short-term upside because they they enable you to sell a more targeted audience. In effect, they're infusing data into your cell. Mm-hmm. And as you do a data-infused cell, you get a massive uplift on your yields, and that's great. We should all be doing that. But the trading model becomes atomized RTB, and then the power goes to the tech platforms and others. So I think ultimately in the long run, that doesn't suit anybody in the value chain apart from the people doing that commoditization. So what I what I hope is at the moment, I see a few companies experimenting with these solutions that are very tempting. There's no big setup fee. There's demand now and there are yield uplifts. Great, lovely to have all of that. But if that's where we stay, then ultimately the medium becomes commoditized, everybody loses out. So what I hope people will do is see that new trading models are to everybody's advantage and that will need some of the newer new entrants into the tech race to do that. I think you're right, and I think that they'll move into a, a market-based mechanic. And I'm not entirely sure how it's going to pan out, whether it is that everything is bid upon and you, know, you, you, you actually release, you reach a price through demand and supply, maybe, but... What does it mean for auditors and and how do you then start auditing campaigns that could be completely, um, well, incomparable? So may I talk a little bit about the agency-client relationship and then go on to auditors? Please. Um, So good agencies, and I suppose we're mostly talking about media agencies here, good media agencies I think could transform a brand and its business. The ability to bring proper insight, strategy and planning can really help a business revenues leap and I've seen that and the the best agencies are are wonderful at bringing that power to bear. Um, The challenge is I think increasingly it's hard for clients to be able to articulate the value of that strategic value add and particularly um, CMOs will say but my CFO or my chief procurement officer forces me to put a value on that and I find it very hard to prove it and stand by it and when I talk to friends and agencies they say the same thing. It's very hard to articulate and put a number on the value of that strategic process. So in its worst cases, we all know the famous pitches where this has happened. In its worst cases, media gets pitched as a widget Mm -hmm. and you can hold your 58 meetings, which is brutal on the agency staff. But ultimately, it's pretty clear that the choice gets made on the pricing grid. And the pricing grid sometimes gets delivered, sometimes doesn't, all sorts of agony there, but that's a story for another day. And ultimately what it does is drive down the perceived value in media, which in the long run is we know isn't sustainable. Mm-hmm. But in the short term, it has the impact on the agency that where I think their biggest value add is on, on doing the right strategic thing and then buying that very well, the fees that are being earned I often don't justify the level of talent being put on the business. And the agency isn't a charity. It perfectly reasonably needs to make money. And so you end up with some unfortunate trading mechanics which makes clients increasingly paranoid about agencies and distrustful of them and thinking they don't know enough 
to ask the right questions and so forth. So I think you get into a negative spiral between in the relationship between, not in every case, but there, there is a trend where you get into a negative spiral and the relationship between CMOs and their media agencies becomes untrusting. And so you lose the value add. It becomes a way to aggregate demand, put your foot on the windpipe of media owners and negotiate lower pricing. And it's perfectly fair to negotiate lower pricing for clients. That's what they should do. I get that. But that becomes the primary part of the client pitch. Now, if that's your philosophy, which I think is a tragedy for the agencies and for everybody involved, Completely frankly, agree. if that's your philosophy, then you think, well, actually, I'm not sure I trust these guys, these, this agency, and I think they might be doing things trading my book that I don't fully understand, and frankly, that's not an unreasonable concern. Um, I say again, not with every agency, but we all know some of what's happened out there. And so if, if, if you have that concern, it's perfectly reasonable to say, I'll get an auditor to check. And there's some really smart, really good ethical auditors that do an excellent job. Again, I think it's fairly well known. There are some auditors that will say, well, I don't really know much about this medium. I'll phone a mate and ask what that should have cost. So in effect, the audit pool is a quick phone call rather than a pool. We've all seen that happen. Uh, and I also worry that there's a potential... Auditors do a lovely job of presenting themselves as being the only pure arbiters of truth. Uh, but I suppose I observe, if I'm an auditor and I always tell my client that their agency did a great job... I probably don't get hired that often. So there, there is a bit of moral hazard in the need for the auditor to always come back and say, well, actually, here's why I think your agency didn't do well. And so you get into, uh, you've delegated the dance now, whereas the client used to check up on the agency. The client now dele delegated that to the auditor to check up on the agency. And you end up, the logical conclusion is you'll have to hire somebody else to check on the auditor, and you end up with a very long chain. So I'd love to get to a place where, of course, clients should demand great value. Uh, and that should be for the strategy and planning they demand. Of course, the best agencies are phenomenally good at that and turn that into brilliant buying plans where they buy very low-cost media to deliver brilliant strategies. That's how it should work, and in many cases does. Uh, and I'd love to see less focus on uh, the price of the widget and more focus on actually what value we, are we creating uh, for the brand and for the client. And then we can come back to charging a fair fee for a fair service provided and a true value add and the glimmer of hope that i see and we, we we've all known that if we had a quid for everybody who said the agency model is dead we would now be millionaires actually the agency model isn't dead there are plenty of agencies making really good money um so i don't think it's true what i'd like to see happen is being able to be more transparent throughout the chain about what the model is and how it works and a potential hope is programmatic can be a way to obscure the value chain and where money goes and who gets what and, and various bad practices. Done right, it can be a way to find the right fair price in the market for who's prepared to pay what and you get to a good price and you take away the need to argue and beat each other up about the pricing. And you'll have to have some strategic frameworks and so on so there's real human work to do but the actual pricing can be found by a marketplace which seems to be good for everybody indeed and if it's focused on an outcome then you, t you take the actual focus away from being and i don't want to call it commodity but the commodity of media moving into actually this mix works then that's the thing that should be being audited right i completely agree and i, I th hope it does two things one is it releases the agency to be doing brilliant strategic planning work laying down what the plan should be doing great work setting up the right relationships with the right tech vendors and media owners and so on to add the value agency people are so smart and thoughtful and creative and this is what clients want from them and i hope it releases agencies to do more of that um, 
as then we find the right price for the right thing. And as you say, the other thing we should be doing is going up the value chain. And sometimes the client does have a goal for, I want that media spot and that media owner, great, that's fine. But more often they've got, I need to talk to this kind of person or deliver this kind of message or get 100,000 app downloads mm. or whatever. And if we can get closer to their end business goal, well, they'll pay more for that, which is very helpful. We're taking the risk they're not about delivering it. And media owners ought to believe in our own medium. So it's great for us to go up the value chain. Thank you for, for coming in. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I've got two more questions, to, well, actually three more questions to finish off with. First of all, what is the best piece of advice that you've had along your journey? What I've noticed is that every entrepreneur who's set up their own business successfully uh, talks to me about two things. Uh, they all say, um, who's your co-founding team? And co-founded businesses perform better than solopreneurs. Um, but co-founded business where there's niggling doubt between the founders go wrong. And they all say, you think you've had honest conversations when you're having performance conversations in corporate life. This is another level of just having to be brutally honest quickly about what's working, what's not. And when you've got a great team of co-founders, it storms and it flies and magic happens. And where, it, where you haven't, it trips up. So that's a near universal theme that I've heard from particularly entrepreneurs. And the second is, uh, they say, first time entrepreneurs, you guys worry too much about dilution. And you shouldn't. What you should think about is how much runway do you need, so time and cash, to get the business to work. Uh, double it and raise that. Oh. And that way, you've got the space to run the business and to operate the business. And inevitably, an entrepreneur is always impatient to want things to be faster, bigger, sooner. You should be. That's the nature of the role. Uh, but inevitably, some things go better, some things go worse. And when you move from PowerPoint to actually doing stuff, inevitably, it's different to what you expected. It should be. So my next question is not basic, and I need to just bring... I said at the beginning that we were coming back to astrophysics, and I don't know whether this is an actual astrophysics question, but you might be able to help me think about this. If it's infinite between here and the edge of the universe, how far do we have to travel before things start repeating themselves? It's tempting to say repeating themselves, repeating themselves. <laughs> hit rewind, hit rewind on your machine, we'll repeat ourselves straight away. <laughs> so look, it's fascinating. Most astrophysicists today think that the universe uh, isn't physically infinite today and that it's uh, something called flat which means it's it will expand forever um, ever and finally tear itself apart uh, in one or three different ways uh, so I, what fascinates me is on that basis does that mean in an infinite universe there must be uh, another overheated studio where Adam it's and getting hot in this conversation yeah. <laughs> uh, and i suppose it, it, if and when we do believe in a truly infinite universe uh, it would happen but surely in an infinite universe you'd have to travel infinitely far to find the repeat exactly okay but on this occasion, you only have to scroll down one line to get the next edition of the podcast or the repeat. You don't have to go infinitely far for this one. Matthew, you have to come back here, even if it's just to give us those segues. But thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. You, you've always been somebody I've talked to for, for wise advice, and you've continued to do that today. Thank you very much for coming in. kind. Great to see you. Thank you for listening to Let's Do the Right Thing in association with RadioWorks, the UK's largest independent radio advertising agency. Let's Do the Right Thing is a Maple Street Creative production, devised and presented by Adam Hopkinson. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Um...